This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You know, the A380 Super Jumbo by Airbus, the largest uh, commercial uh, jetliner uh, in the country, it was supposed to revolutionize commercial air travel. Instead, just 14 years after its first test flight, it is being phased out. The A380 was built to respond to Boeing's 747, but whereas the 747 carried around 470 passengers, the A380 could hold upwards of 600. Airbus had a customer base that included 13 different carriers from Europe, China, Australia, and the Emirates, but sold none in the United States. But between changing patterns by customers in air travel, as well as a push for more fuel efficiency with aircraft, there wasn't much future for this giant aircraft. Its fate was likely sealed earlier this month when Australian airline Qantas canceled a big order of the double-decker jets. The final A380 will roll off the assembly line in 2021. With more on this news, we are joined on the phone by Roger W. Clark, founding member of the Clark Law Group and also a visiting professor at Rutgers University Law School where he teaches aviation law. And also with us is Kenneth Button, a a public policy professor at George Mason University's uh, Shar School of Public Policy and Government. Great to have you both uh, with us today. Thank you, Roger. Thank you, Ken. Great to talk to you again. Good to talk to you, Dan. Thank you. Great to have you both with us. Uh, So I guess, Roger, surprised that this move is being made uh, by Airbus at all? Well, 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 Dan, I'm uh, I'm, I'm disappointed in the Beatles, uh, John, Paul, George, and Ringo, because they (laughs) told us and have told us for all these decades that all you need is love. And if all you needed was love, the uh, 380 would be flying forever because uh, it, it probably has the most comfortable ride. It's silent. It's a very stable platform. Uh, you have an incredible amount of room inside. Um, bars up in the first class. You have showers. It, you know, it, it's a passenger paradise. Uh, and there really is no other ride like it. Uh, but since the Beatles misled us, you do need more than love. You need, uh, you know, the financial security. You need a profit on it. And and the 380, through various types of uh, market forces, um, came probably at the wrong time. There were uh, market misforecasts as well. Uh, you know, Airbus was predicting that uh, by 2020, there should be about, uh, uh, you know, 1,500 of these very large a- aircraft flying. Uh, and they thought that they would have about 750 to 800 of these 380s in the air uh, by now. Uh, the number actually delivered is less than 300, and, and unfortunately it uh, was a market misforecast, even though the passengers love it. Ken, your thoughts? Well, I'm pleased to hear there are showers and bars in first class. I've never actually been there. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think it was a serious misforecast in many, many ways. Um, to make money these days on long-haul transportation, you normally need to to carry both cargo and passengers. And one of the huge, huge problems with the 380 is that it's not a cargo plane and is very difficult to convert. And in fact, they've never converted one. Whereas the 747, its main competitor, is still continuing in production in the cargo version because it's ideally suited to that as well as passengers. It was not simply they misforecast uh, the types of plane, they misforecast the, 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 well, not sure they misforecast, they misjudged the type of uh, traffic which is growing. Cargo is growing at about a third as fast again as passenger transport. So you've got a plane that can't carry it economically, and uh, it, it costs a lot to run. 
How how much of an expectation was there even considered, Ken, going back in time, of using this as a cargo plane? Well, I once had lunch to drop a few names with the president of uh, Air France and KLM uh, one day in Paris, and Air France was buying one. So I asked the president why he was buying one. He simply used one word, politics. <laughs> okay, okay. That explains it uh, quite a bit. Uh, so I guess, Roger, when you're talking about the life expectancy of a plane, especially when you're talking about uh, the commercial side, uh, what normally is the ballpark that you want to see a plane have for its life? Well, and this is important, you know, statistic, you know, particularly with the uh, leasing, commercial leasing world, because uh, probably 30, 40, 50, maybe even 60 percent of the uh, worldwide uh, commercial aviation fleet is leased. And and these are uh, metrics that are very important to the leasing industry. But, you know, you would hope to get uh, 10 to 15 years out of a primary lease, and you'd probably release it after that. But, but that being said, uh, you know, it's really hard to come up with an average because some airplanes are very successful uh, and find their niche market. You know, you take the uh, a classic, uh, you know, like the DC-3, uh, which flew in the 1930s. There were about 14,000, 15,000 of those produced. There's still six or seven or 800 of them still flying uh, in, in productive use. Uh, you know, you look at the Boeing 707, uh, which first flew in the 1950s, and and there's still military variants applying in the United States. It's you know used as a as a, re, a refueler, uh, and and then you have an aircraft like uh, you know the 380, um, and it's only been in the air for uh, barely a decade, and and it's already being retired. Uh, so so there's a number of factors that you know come into play, and and uh, you know Airbus uh, suffered the the, the same. Um, commercial failure with its uh, Airbus 340 line, uh, which was a four-engine airplane, and, and they shut that uh, uh, production line down in uh, four or five, you know, five years ago, also having to take a big write-off. So, Ken, then the bottom-line impact for Airbus making this move is what? Because they invested, what, upwards of $20 billion in this? Well, you're never quite sure where the money came from and how it went through the system. Yeah. So when you say they... Uh, that's an interesting word to use. True, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I imagine they're probably, uh, they've written a lot of this off now. I mean, one of the big problems, just coming back to your f- previous question also, is the planes that have been successful have been very, very flexible. The trouble with the 380 is, is the extreme of an aircraft range. You can't sort of use it for smaller routes and there aren't the bigger routes growing. So the, the, the planes which are successful and the ones you make your money from are ones which you can continually evolve, change, and modify, stretch, um, or whatever else. Planes like the uh, uh, 737, for example, which has also been around a long time and, and earned a lot of money. When you go for a specialized plane like the Concorde or a specialized plane like the 380, you are really risking an awful lot on basically one type of market. Roger? Yeah, and, and, and that, that's true. And, you know, you look at uh, the overall impact of the cancellation, what, what it means um, to, uh, to Airbus uh, long-term is, is, is marginal. In fact, when it announced the cancellation of the program, the stock price actually went up. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you, but the, probably nine, uh, 90% of the airplanes that Airbus sells are in the you know the Airbus 320 range, which is a narrow body, and a uh, 350, which is their you know wide body um, uh, jet. They and, and Airbus sells uh, 
close to a thousand commercial uh, airplanes a year. I, I, interestingly, the, you know, the, the benefactor of this may be Boeing uh, in in some ways because uh, with the 380 coming off the market, uh, Boeing has coming. Uh, uh, it's going to fly for the first time uh, within weeks uh, of our uh, speaking here of the triple seven nine x which uh, is a new uh, wide body uh, a variant of the triple seven but it's being stretched and widened a little bit that uh, will uh, have the capacity in a you know traditional uh, three class international configuration to carry about four hundred twenty five or you know passengers thereabout and and that's going to make it the uh, uh, the biggest pat by passenger count air, air, uh, aircraft commercial aircraft you know, flying uh, when its uh, when its commercial deliveries begin in a year or two. So, you know, those uh, airlines that may have been going for the 380 uh, will, will probably now be looking at the uh, 7779X uh, because it is specifically designed to be more fuel efficient. Yeah. Uh, you know, Emirates was pushing Airbus and, and Rolls-Royce, the engine manufacturer, to you know, try to make improvements uh, to right. get more efficiency, and and Rolls Royce and Airbus refuse to make the additional capital investment. So uh, that's you know one of the reasons that it, uh, Emirates have pulled the uh, plug on the order for the last thirty nine of those aircraft. Eight four four Wharton is the number to give us a call. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at bizradio one thirty two or my Twitter account, which is at dan loney twenty one. Joined by Roger W. Clark and Kenneth Button. Uh, I, I guess Ken the 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 fact of the fuel efficiency is, is an important component here, especially with how so many airlines uh, went through, uh, obviously, a rough time when we saw the, uh, the economic downturn uh, globally. They have really worked hard to try and get their bottom lines uh, as sharp and as tight as they possibly can. And when you have a plane that is not as fuel, it doesn't have as good fuel economy as another one, the, the options are probably fairly simple. Yeah, I mean, but fuel economy is per passenger or per ton or whatever. It's not for the total plane. And it depends what your load factors are and various other things in terms of uh, the bottom line, because the bottom line, of course, is revenue minus cost. Right. We tend to focus on cost. And the big problem with the airline industry during the Great Recession, like many sectors, was a declining demand. Um, and trying to fill seats, so you've got less revenue. But you're absolutely right. Um, the airline industry is becoming very efficient. Uh, uh, airline aircraft, uh, on average, uh, increase. If you buy a new aircraft year on year, they get one percent more efficient each year. And you can often put that technology retrospectively into some aircraft. And this is what the airlines are looking for. They want fuel economy. They want reliability. But they also want, in particular, aircraft which uh, fit into their network uh, systems. And that's the other problem we've not mentioned with the 380. Uh, you get quite a lot of downtime because uh, of the nature of the network it serves. It's, a, it's a not a very good idea and never was. But, yes, you're absolutely right. We are concerned with uh, fuel efficiency, and Boeing market a lot of their planes specifically on that, that particular feature. Was there an expectation, then, do you think, that, that Emirates – being one of these uh, these big uh, Middle East airlines would have been one of the ones to to want to have an A380, especially if they were going to be trying to open up uh, routes coming to the United States. 
Well, they got, yeah, they, 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 they're the sort of people that pushed for it originally, and they probably wanted to retain it, but only only by enhancing fuel efficiency. Right. Um, and, and, and the markets are different now. When you fly to the States, there's a lot of gateways into America which are used. And it ditto when you fly to Europe or the Middle East or, well, from the Middle East to Asia. Um, it's not all going to the major hubs anymore. The world has changed quite considerably. And that's what Boeing was actually banking on. And that's what their forecast told them would happen. Airbus didn't get their forecast right, as I said earlier. Roger? Well, it, it, it's a good point. And, and part of what we're alluding to here is is, is the political environment and the impact that that has. Uh, you know, Airbus with the 380 uh, was banking on the traditional, uh, you know, a hub and spoke. Uh, 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 you know, uh, model, the protocol. And the 380 came on board just as when open skies really began to kick off. Mm. And, and right. what, what open skies is, is basically is, a, is a, you know, an international political environment where uh, many of the world's countries agree to open up uh, their airspace to uh, market dynamics as opposed to trying to control uh, the entry and the routing and the landings and the takeoffs based on you know a political allocation, and 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 so once uh, you know Europe and and of course the United States have open skies and most so many other countries now are in this open sky environment and what what that means and why it's bad for a program like the 380 is is, is that now you can fly uh, more often uh, to to more destinations, uh, eliminating that reliance on the hub and spoke you know program. Uh, so, so that was a political thing that uh, you know. I think Boeing w- was anticipating Airbus. I think anticipated you know the wrong way, and that was one of the nails that went into the coffin of the 380. Now, now there, there, there's something you know else that's at you know at play here because you know uh, there, there was a, about a four billion uh, dollar, maybe euros, a, a dollar in terms of developmental cost mm. uh, that mo- went to the 380, uh, and this has been a con- source of contention between the United States and. Uh, Europe, you know, through its, uh, you know, through its uh, principles, you know, Boeing and Airbus, because that four billion dollars uh, wasn't made, at least according to the allegation of the Americans, on on, on a commercially reasonable basis. Right. Uh, be, be, yep. Because uh, nothing was to be paid until Airbus began to make a profit on a per aircraft, and then once the aircraft are no longer sold, no further monies are owed. And then the loan is forgiven. So you're basically uh, being indemnified against your loss. Now, uh, you know, the WTO ruled last year that that was unfair competition and that uh, Boeing was entitled to damages or sanctions. And now with the cancellation of the 380, the the folks at uh, Airbus are already gearing up to argue that there are no damages or sanctions due because the WTO always looks to the future. Uh, for losses and assessments. So it may bring to an end the WTO program that awarded uh, sanctions in favor of uh, Boeing. Ken, your thoughts? No, that's what I was actually alluding to earlier when you asked about the actual costs and the implications to to Airbus. It's quite a complicated financial situation on both sides of the Atlantic. You have other stories, of course, if you sit in Europe and you hear about uh, military subsidies and so on to Boeing. But we're talking here about a firm legal decision. And I've no, I, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not quite sure what the implications are, but certainly implications are there. 844 Wharton is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. So, so, Ken, how do you think then this 
I mean, obviously, Boeing is going to be, uh, to a degree, happy that one of their rivals is taking their biggest uh, plane off of the market. But then again, it wasn't a big seller to begin with. How does Boeing view this move by Airbus in terms of their structure of what they're doing with their business? Well, their structures... The structure is set in train for a number of years, so it's all about long-term strategy and planning. Right. You know, the orders of planes uh, come in, and the orders for 15 years in advance from now. The point about uh, Airbus is, of course, that if you start cutting back on, well, get rid of the 380, that releases resources for other production. That may allow speeding up as production of existing models. Uh, there are some. Uh, there's always some bottlenecks in these production lines for different planes. It may allow development and refinements of existing planes to take place more rapidly. There's a whole lot of options out there which Airbus have got to, to consider and confront. One assumes that this decision was made with, within a larger strategic plan. So Boeing has got to somehow double-guess what Airbus will do and uh, therefore adjust its uh, strategy accordingly. I suspect Boeing have had a pretty good idea this was going to happen for a while, and uh, I've been you know, thinking ahead with the developments with 777, uh, uh, 787, and so on. Um, it's a big business developing new aircraft, and it's very nice for Boeing to have a flexibility in the line they've got to modify and change. Um, and I think they'll play that game rather than rush in and try and produce some you know, world-leading aircraft to replace what's available. Roger? The uh, you know making market forecast uh, fifteen now fifteen years out in the future is not you know for the faint of heart and, <laughs> and uh, particularly yes. when you're dealing with with the capital investments and developmental cost uh, you know now the folks who are really good at forecasting the market fifteen now fifteen years out in the future are the uh, single malt distillers uh, you know they, they they produce a lot of fifteen year old scotch they put it in the cask in fifteen years there's always a demand for it they do quite well all right but when it comes to commercial aircraft it's a very frightening environment. Roger, no, I, no. Roger, I think you're saying your crystal ball is a little foggy right now? Yeah, it's a little foggy. Okay, all right. That's what I thought. Okay. But, but you know, both, both Boeing are, and, and Airbus are bullish on the, you know, the future yeah. of the commercial market. And, and uh, you know, there's currently now about 20,000 uh, air, give or take, uh, commercial aircraft flying. And, yeah. and over the next 15 to 20 years, both Airbus and Boeing are forecasting that market to go up to 40,000. You know, they're, they're predicting 1,500 to 2,000 commercial jet aircraft a year to be sold over the mm -hmm. next several several decades now now 70 percent of those are somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters are expected to be narrow-bodied uh not 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 the wide-bodied and and you know you know for example uh, there was just announced uh, just a few hours ago that uh, viet jets uh, uh you know a private uh, vietnam airline intends to sign an order for 100 uh, you know 737 maxes next week when uh, you know mm -hmm. president trump is in Hanoi. Go ahead, Ken. I was just going to interrupt there and say, of course, we're assuming the Chinese don't get their their act together with well, these narrow-bodied jets. Well, and that that would be something else I wanted to touch on, Ken, is that we, in the in the scope of all of these orders that may be coming in in the next few years, how many of them potentially are for actually, they're all for new aircraft, but how many of them are replacing old aircraft and how many of them are adding to existing inventory that, uh, that, uh, that an airline may have? Well, the, the replacement, planes seem to live forever these days. The airframe continues. I mean, we've got 
you really don't want to know how old a plane is when you get on it these days. You'd be frightened. Um, but there, there is a, a, obviously uh, the, the a stock of planes there. A lot of those planes are quite new. There's been quite a lot of building recently, and new ones coming online. But I do think that the, the, the crucial factor is we've only got two players in the market. Yeah. The market is profitable. The market's growing. Um, both India, who's got some interest in this, and China uh, want to start moving into the larger commercial aviation market. They, they sort of dabble in regional jets and things, but I'm talking about the, the bigger planes. I think the interesting thing to, to think about is what happens if you get three players in the market. Ken, uh, but, but Roger, I'll get your comment in a second. I just want to let you know, Ken, that as soon as you said that, don't think about the uh, the age of a plane. All three of us here in the studio are like, great, that's the next thing I'm going to think about the next time I fly. So thank you, Ken. I appreciate that. R- Roger, give us your thoughts on 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 what this means for the 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 mix, the change of the mix of planes within uh, within uh, air, the airline industry. What, and, and you're already seen it, uh, you know, in the past year because going to the other uh, end of the spectrum of commercial jet aircraft, uh, you've seen these joint ventures between Airbus and Bombardier, the uh, you know Canadian manufacturer of uh, you know regional jets. Uh, you know, and we're t- when we're talking about regional jets, we're talking about uh, uh, passenger seating ranging from about 50 to maybe up to 150 seats, which is right. that niche just below the 737 or the you know the uh, Airbus 320. And, and then you know Boeing, you know, is joint ventured with Embraer, the Brazilian manufacturer, and and, and you know Boeing and, and, and Airbus are both predicting you know six to seven, eight thousand regional jet sales in the next uh, probably fifteen to twenty years. So there's huge growth in, in this uh, regional jet yeah. market. Uh, th- those profits in, in that range are not, uh, you know, what they are on the bi- bigger jets, and uh, uh, which is forcing a lot of this consolidation, but. But you know the the developmental cost can still be as much on a big sure. jet, uh, you know, and it, you know it can cost six, seven, eight billion dollars to develop a you know regional jet. Now, Delta just uh, began uh, flying the Airbus uh, 220, which is the uh, product of the uh, merger with Bombardier, um, and it's uh, is taking a delivery of 70, uh, 75 of those aircraft, uh, you know, in the next year or two. So, so the, there's there's a healthy market there. So, so you, you, you've seen a lot of flying. Uh, you know, people are going to uh, 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 the industry is under a lot of pressure to get away from the uh, uh, continue to get away from the hub and spoke because of the continued you know increase in passenger traffic, four to five percent per year. You know, JFK, Philadelphia, you know, Logan. It can only take so many landings, you know, per per day. So you need to. Uh, uh, find other locations, uh, you know, as well, where that are convenient to the passengers and and uh, and have point-to-point service. But Ken, I, I guess to a degree, then this move by Airbus to to mothball the A380 will have an impact on kind of the core operations of Airbus, and I'm thinking specifically of there could be some people that that were working specifically on that project that will either get moved to other projects or potentially would lose their jobs. Well, yeah, that's inevitable. It's uh, uh, Airbus is a European venture, and uh, uh, although the assembly is usually around Toulouse, places like Hamburg um, actually have quite a, a large uh, interest in, in construction development of the uh, Airbus planes. And there's going to be some impact in the uh, in the uh, aviation construction sector. But of course, as we've been hearing, the sector is growing very rapidly. So. Yeah. Uh, and the jobs are interchangeable in a sense. I mean, if you've got a particular skilled job in constructing an aircraft, it doesn't make much, take much effort to retrain you 
to do uh, you know other jobs, uh, very similar jobs. Uh, these days, it's mass production. It's not sort of individual craftsmanship, although it's quite a lot of craftsmanship in it. But um, I, I don't think it's going to really hit the labour market too much. Um, it may have some minor impact, but Airbus is you know it's going to take a while for it to be phased out and so on. It, it, they've got to make spare parts. You can't just ha- have the existing fleet flying around without some spares. It's not going to be too dramatic in that sense, I don't think. Roger? Well, well Qantas uh, announced, I think it's got 12, 15 copies mm-hmm. of the 380, and, uh, you know, they've gone on record uh, and uh, by saying that uh, we plan to fly the 380 uh, for the indefinite future. And, and uh, you know, other some of the other airlines that have acquired the 380 probably feel that, you know, the same way. Uh, certain routes uh, are are well fitted for the 380, and that works well for Qantas, which flies those long trans-Pacific you know routes. Uh, so the Airbus is going to be around uh, in in some way, flying passengers probably uh, for another 10 to 15 uh, years. But I think that the final takeaway, if if you want to uh, fall in love with the aircraft and you haven't flown on it yet, you probably would fly it sooner rather than wait too long before you buy a ticket. Ken, quickly, how how much can potentially Bombardier maybe continue to make an impact in this industry, especially if it is growing the way that you guys both say? Bombardier, the small producer aircraft, yeah. uh, the, the market there seems to be um, in the sort of, just as we heard earlier, just below the 737 level. Yeah. Um, particularly planes, actually, uh, many routes of, which carry 99 passengers. Yeah. The reason being is to save on a cabin crew. Right. That's <laughs> true. Yeah, it's a yeah. trivial thing, in a sense, but uh, not for an operator. Oh, they'll survive, but their margins are lower, and it's becoming very competitive at the bottom. This is where the Chinese and Indians and other manufacturers are coming into the market. They, they can, they've got the R&D for it, and they can produce them more cheaply. Great having you both with us today. Uh, gentlemen, Roger, Ken, uh, enjoy your weekend. Thanks very much for Thanks. your time today. As always, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. Roger W. Clark, founding member of the Clark Law Group and uh, visiting professor at Rutgers University Law School. Kenneth Button, uh, public policy professor at George Mason University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.